Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I have Tara Station on the show. She was one of the first product managers at Stripe and now is the business lead for financial products. She's also been a founder in the past, so I thought she'd be the perfect person to learn about a topic that I've been super interested in recently, and that's monetization. We get into how to think about it as a product manager, different tips and tricks and frameworks and traps you can fall into, and really how to think about creating value for customers. I hope you enjoy it. Tara, welcome to the show. Thanks, Maggie. Excited to be here. I'm really excited about today's topic because one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is how product managers' roles change as we grow in our careers. And I think one of the things I've been noticing is that obviously the scope of your product grows and changes as you move up, but also the breadth of topics that you have to think about, I think, also change. And one of those things is monetization and thinking about your product in the context of the business that you're in. So I'm excited to get your input on this topic. But first, if you could just share a little bit of background on how you got started uh, thinking about monetization and where this knowledge came up for you. Yeah, for sure. So I first can't claim to be like any broad expert on monetization. I haven't published many thought leader books on this topic or anything. I I really think my time spent thinking about monetization came from working on first products at Stripe that were getting monetized for the first time where we needed to figure out, oh, we have a successful core product. How do we think about monetizing these new incremental products? And I've spent the majority of my time at Stripe working on those like first versions of products. And so therefore had to think about the first monetization scheme at that time. And then second, I spent a lot of time working on Stripe billing. And so Stripe billing is a suite of building blocks and tools for for developers in order to monetize their business, typically a SaaS business. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about what are the right primitives for monetization? How do people experiment? How flexible does that underlying system, that data model need to be so that people can adequately not only model all the monetization schemes they care about, but think about that iteration over time. So in order to do that, spent many the day, week, month, year, (laughs) going over many different companies' monetization schemes and really almost charting their evolution and thinking about how the system works with that. If you were to go back and you're working on the first version of a product, clearly, I would assume that your product has some sort of price. But then it's like, okay, now I need to start thinking about how to monetize this more effectively. Like, What are the first things that you think about? The first step of that process is thinking about monetizing something in the first place. I've noticed a lot of companies either used to an ads-based model or used to a core product and having add-ons get subsidized just underestimate how much they actually can monetize their product and dismiss potentially the monetization of that product in favor of saying, oh, no, we're covered by by this other revenue line at the company. And I think having an instinct of actually, no, maybe we should price this is a good one. And so some, at some point in the product development process, you should, as a matter of practice, have a step where you pause and think, hey, let's is this possible to monetize? Can we assign a price to this product area? And it should just be a default thing that you assess for every single new feature that you roll out, every single new product or sub-product that you're thinking about. I think the second step is the classic, maybe boring answer is just going to handle on your marginal costs. For most software businesses, this is not a big deal, though I've spent a lot of time in fintech where you know marginal costs really are a big deal. But that's almost a, a step that should be 
the norm here also like get a handle on your costs make sure you're understanding your costs understand the structure are they marginally incurred do you just have a like technology based flat fee that you're thinking about how important is it to recover costs on this given product or are costs recovered somewhere else so that's almost step 2 after you've said no no i think we're going to monetize Step three, maybe jumping ahead of myself a little bit, is to think about where where value is. And so the thing that I generally do on the advice of Shreyas, who is like one of the first PM managers, I think the first PM manager at Stripe, and a font of strategy wisdom, is to bring up your segmentation at this point. So say, all right, how have I segmented my market? Which segment am I especially resonating with? Who is my user very specifically for this product? And then who is my edge case user? Almost like who's my design center and who is kind of in the splash zone there. And so when you're going to come up with a monetization scheme, you want to make sure that, of course, it is best suited to your design center, but also that folks in your splash zone they're not getting a really, really sweet deal. So sometimes like key features are really important to your design center, but not important to kind of those splash zone users. And they end up getting a really great deal because you've monetized those important features and not the other ones. So just kind of think about based on all of these use cases, what are the important elements to monetize? Where are the like vectors that you can indeed monetize either usage or um, account opening or, or seats or something like that? I really love the concept of the splash zone. I'm giggling. I just think that that's like such a great way to think about it. I'm curious, like when you're doing this type of work and you're talking about monetization, I'm assuming that there's an element that's both packaging as well as the actual price that you're putting on different features. And is that something that you think PMs should be thinking about? You know, not just what can be monetized, but also how would this fit into the packaging structure that the business has? Oh yeah, absolutely. The broader way that we think about this at Stripe, but I think about this personally, is that PMs have accountability here across the board. So it doesn't matter who decided on the actual price that was put on your product. It doesn't matter who decided on, oh, no, it's this area. I very much don't care about lanes between roles. But at the end of the day, if a user has issue with it and is on Hacker News saying, what the heck is this price? It's it's on you, the PM. Like you retain that accountability here and, and you have to figure it out. And so as a result, in terms of where a PM gets involved in the process of monetization, up to you as a PM, but it really just depends on where the gaps are. So I think bundling is a really important area and packaging is a really important area for a PM to get involved because it just also impacts the user journey and how the user flows between your basic package to your premium package, those packages and the framing of them, whether they're a good, better, best, or they are a, this is for the big users, this is for the small users, they're not good, better, best, they're based on profile. Those things are really, really affected by, or rather those things really, really affect the UI, the user journey, which features you're putting in one thing or the other, what is the underlying structure here? How does engineering need to think about these two areas? So very important for a PM to get involved. But I would argue a PM should be involved in the entire life cycle. And if not involved, they are regardless accountable. So up to you as a PM to, to think about how much you want to also accompany that accountability with responsibility for individual tasks. Yeah, I agree. I also think that the... I can't remember exactly when this happened, but there was definitely a moment at which I stopped thinking about the pricing and the plans as this 
thing that is set in stone that I can't affect. And then as an input to how I think about the value that we're creating for a customer, that shift in my mindset opened up a lot of more options about how to think about that user journey and like where the right points are to, to think about where you're creating additional value for different users. Because all of a sudden you see, oh, wait, actually, we, we can change these things. And just because you're priced a certain way doesn't mean you can't change it. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And I'm curious to get your take on a feeling that I've I've definitely felt and I think some PMs would have, which is, let's say you're, you're focused really heavily on creating this amazing experience and creating value for customers and solving problems for them. And it feels kind of weird and icky to think about, well, actually you have to pay. I'm going to make you pay more for me to solve this problem for you. Have you ever run into that? Or do you have any advice for PMs who are starting to think about how to build monetization into a product that might not be super well monetized? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think I felt this way maybe when I, when I was working on a product before Stripe. I was, I was thinking about founding companies. And when I was a founder and thinking about charging people, I was like, oh man, like my users are, are using my, at this point, half-baked product. I should be paying them <laughs> at this point. Right. <laughs> but I think that to me, the issue is not delivering value and then capturing a small part of that value. Like you should always feel comfortable capturing a small part of the value. The issue is if you are delivering value and the amount that you are capturing is out of whack with the value that you're delivering. So you shouldn't think about, oh, it's key for me to monetize this somewhat. The issue is, does my product actually add enough value to justify the price that I'm putting on it? And the answer should not be, I'm going to lower the price potentially. The answer should be, why is my product not delivering enough value? How can I do more for my user? How can I solve more problems? How can I justify a high price on this? Because if it's not delivering that much value to the user, there's also a question of, what's your opportunity cost? Could you be building something even more valuable? So to me, if you're getting caught in like, oh, this is like kind of icky to, to monetize here, the better question is to take a step back and say, why do I not feel like this product is delivering enough value to justify that price? I would imagine that maybe even you're not solving the right set of problems for that customer if, you, if you're getting the sense that this customer is not going to pay me more for this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So then do you have a sense of what are the, the sort of the frameworks that you think about when you're doing one of these projects or you're thinking about monetization? Are there a couple that you think are relevant for PMs to know just off the top of their heads? Yeah, I think the the most useful kind of templated thing you can do or a framework that you can follow is that framework to think about first user segmentation. Once you're in user segmentation, divide your users into core versus kind of the opportunistic segments that you'll go after, the latter also being the splash zone. Once you've identified those those two buckets, that's when you start thinking about, all right, what are the different elements in that user journey? Where does the user derive value? And then where should I um, think about assigning that value in terms of price? In terms of the price itself, the way you're charging for it, is this usage-based? Is this a flat fee? Is this a metered billing scenario? That is entirely up to you. And actually, I think that should be something that you experiment with and iterate on over time. Some companies think about pricing as this thing they can never change, or if they change it, it's a really, really big deal. But actually, companies experiment and change pricing all the time, even B2B companies. I actually think people almost put too much weight in deciding what is the exact right framework to use to figure out the exact monetization scheme. Instead, 
put something that you think is really reasonable out there. You can't know everything and experiment and then iterate if it doesn't make sense. Of course, there's an element of respect for your user and not iterating at a crazy, crazy amount. But I don't think that sort of iteration cadence is that different from how how you would think about your UI. Users also find it onerous to constantly have the sand shifting underneath them from your product experience and your UI. And that's pretty analogous to what they might feel on, on pricing as well. Yeah, I was going to say that's a really good point. I think I definitely feel a bigger burden for for no reason, no real reason on changing price versus, yeah, of course we could test a different UI, no problem, but testing a different price feels scarier for some reason. So that's a, that's a good point to call out. I mean, there's also a bunch of levers available to you if you don't want to migrate all of your existing users to a new price. It just depends on, as a company, whether you think the opportunity is larger for acquiring new users or really upselling your existing base. And that just depends on which phase you're in as a company. If you believe that most of the opportunity is ahead of you, it might actually be easier to say, great, all of my existing users are on the legacy price. You're on the legacy price for the next two years. We won't force upgrade until those two years pass. For everyone else, you're on this new price and we're going to iterate and experiment with how we charge that. And you just need a really good billing system or or payment system. Uh, I I do know of one Um, that can (laughs) help you there. Otherwise, if you do believe that the opportunity is really in your existing base and upselling your existing users, then you should think about actually moving users from old price to new price. But for most companies, most SaaS companies, I would think that it's very much the former. And once they get to the size and scale where the existing base really matters, you should have ideally written into your legacy pricing policy that this expires after some period of time. And so, you know, you two years later are going to have to now wrestle with, oh man, I have to move people off this price. Right. Right. So you're not left with 1200 legacy plan combinations that your billing team is trying to manage and keep track of. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So then how have you seen teams do some testing and experimentation around pricing effectively without alienating customers. Because that's like we were just talking about. I think that's a risk that I definitely see, which is, you know, I don't want to screw up my shot with these new customers that we're trying to bring in. You know, I don't want to mess with my sales team too much. So how have you seen teams do that part really well, if at all? I think the first thing I would say is that strategic companies probably think of pricing as inextricable from where users derive product value. And so they treat it as a product user decision as opposed to just a finance or just a sales decision. And so I think the hub for making the decision is ideally within the product team itself, but it's a highly cross-functional effort. It should involve like a finance stakeholder. It should involve a key sales stakeholder. It should involve, if you need it, like an executive decision maker to ensure that this fits in correctly with the rest of the product portfolio. So To start, I think, to set the team up for success, it should be a cross-functional effort and it should be clear who the decision maker is, who is responsible, who's accountable for each component of making this happen. And that actually helps avoid quite a few problems that might happen down the road, like, oh no, this actually is not compatible with the way sales thinks about XYZ, or actually this other product is about to launch and they have a wholly different price, et cetera. So I think the first step is get the right group together to make decisions and do the work here. The second thing I would say is avail yourself of 
many of these levers that we mentioned earlier. So if you do need to put people on a legacy price, like make sure your system can handle that. It should not actually be onerous for you to maintain a bunch of different plans and prices. And if it is onerous, then then that is a real problem. Like make sure that your infrastructure is in the right place to support things like legacy pricing, things like promotions and discounts that might be really relevant to your users at this point in time. Make sure that you're thinking about bundling as well. Like, oh, maybe for users that buy this additional product, like the price like sort of hike goes away, that kind of stuff. Think more systemically about it and avail yourself of those levers that you have. If you do have a ton of products in the in your portfolio, you can actually think about them as an integrated experience, if that makes sense. I think a nice example of that is like, look at the way Confluence is priced. Um, it is entirely priced based on whether you're using Jira or not. And I think they did a nice job of thinking about what is a full user journey? How does a user consider that bundle? How do they adopt products within that bundle? Even if I have a specific price for Confluence, if my broader user goal is met by them using Jira rather than using Confluence, I'm going to make that clear in my pricing scheme. So deciding it in a silo also ends up making users unhappy because they're saying, hey, well, I'm using so many of your products. Why am I being gouged on on this one? I think it also just differs based on the company, but it's important just to think systemically about this and make sure you have the right team uh, to handle things that come up along the way. Yeah, I agree. I love that Confluence example. Another thing that I found that resonates with me is that as your PM team grows, Drift is a sort of scaling startup, and as our team grows, it's harder and harder to, to keep track of what everyone is doing. And I really, that's such a good point to remember. There might be other considerations you have to think about, and you can't think about your product in isolation, of course, especially either with the user experience or with the pricing. And another thing that I've been doing recently is we had some ideas for a different way to think about the value that one of our products created. And one of the things I did, and who knows if this is useful for everyone, but it was useful for me, which was, okay, if this is how we think the pricing might work, let me grab some of an example customer's data. Let me make a scenario just in a Google sheet on what this would actually look like, this new pricing model would look like for them, for this customer's experience, who's representative of my other customers. Let me play this out. And then let me get on the phone with that customer and say, okay, let's imagine that this is how we were operating. You know, what's your feedback on this? Like, how does this make sense to you? Does this not make sense? And I, I think just being willing to find the customers who are willing to, to play that scenario out with you has been super helpful. Yep, absolutely. I find the thing with pricing, price testing is really valuable, but I find the thing with price testing, at least in the way I've been able to do it, is that it's really hard to simulate it being a real decision. Like every user short of it being a real decision is like, of course, the lower price. But if you say, actually, this is the price is what we're going to charge you. If it's a real scenario, some users will say, yep, that, that seems fine. I'll, I'll accept that. That's my contract. And maybe I'm just doing it wrong. But I find that <laughs> putting it in a real life scenario just makes the data all the more valuable. Yeah, you're right. I don't think I got a good answer of, would you actually pay me this? But at least I got a reaction on, does this the way of thinking about this makes sense, which is what I was looking for. Because yeah, I mean, we already were under contract and they already have, you know, they've already purchased this thing and sort of the, the ship has already sailed for them. So it felt like a relatively safe place to go test out an idea. Whereas, you know, if I tested it on a, a potential client, big dollar value of the contract, you know, I don't want to screw that up. So yeah, yeah, makes a ton of sense. Yeah. So do you have any other examples that you have seen of people who have really nailed this or maybe totally screwed up or like what are the common pitfalls or mistakes that people make when they're doing 
some of this monetization work? Yeah, well, I've always been a huge fan of Slack's pricing. I always thought that they they actually did a really interesting thing, which is use pricing as a key differentiator for their product in the initial days, at least I think. Of course, I can't rewind time back, but I remember their like fair billing policy being something that was something they could talk about as differentiated as a part of their product experience in contrast to, I think, the main alternative, which was HipChat at the time. And the idea was fairly revolutionary, that we will only bill you for active users. Like We will look at usage over the period, like take the integral of that usage and bill you for that rather than a per seat basis, which I think was both exceptionally fair. It was just a nice way for users to have their value align with the price. But I think it was also a just a great example of using pricing as a part of your product experience, as opposed to thinking of it as like a finance policy that is like handed down to product. I really, really like how they did that and, and how that policy continues to, I think, be a, an important part of their product and the way it's continued to evolve, even as it scales so dramatically. Yeah, I love that point about it. Pricing being almost an expression of their values as a business. And you can see their brand personality showing up in that decision as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think they shied away from the complexity of it either. Like it is not an easy thing to bill for by any means, but they, they leaned into that because as, as you mentioned, it's just such a key part of their company values. Yeah. What about mis- common mistakes? Do you have simple ones that you talk to of your team about? So we have someone working at Stripe um, whose name is Patrick McKenzie, but he goes by Patio11 on the internet. And he has two, I guess, aphorisms of a kind that he constantly repeats. The first is, free is not a compelling value proposition to a well-monetized buyer, which goes back to the point that we were making earlier about, uh, sometimes it feels icky to charge, but you just have to remember that free is not a compelling value proposition to a well-monetized buyer for someone, oftentimes, if you're a B2B product, like a company who's buying your product they would rather that you deliver them more value than charge them less. And really the ratio to think about is not necessarily the price. It is how much value are, de- are you delivering to the amount captured. So we just constantly um, repeat that phrase whenever we're thinking, ah, oh, maybe should we give this away for free? Actually, wait, our users are businesses. Free is not a compelling value proposition to a well-monetized buyer. It doesn't make sense. Your audience has funded startups or like scaling businesses. Like, like they have funds their most limited thing is time. And so how do you save them time, deliver them value rather than thinking about, oh no, maybe I need to make this product free. So that's the first we constantly repeat. And of course I'll say for many business models, like a freemium type offering does make sense. But I wonder if like the bias is to think about charging and then think about freemium as an exception rather than the reverse. And I think the other thing that Patio11 constantly says and he's famous for is is charging more, just simply charge more. People really underestimate the value that their product delivers, just charge more. If the market doesn't support it, the market doesn't support it. But it's really a lot easier to take down a price than it is to pull up a price. So charge more, like bias on that side. The thing that I think both of those bring up for me is that you're sort of talking about being confident in the value that your product is delivering. Because if you know that you're delivering value, then you should be willing to charge more and be willing to charge. So I think it's it all comes back to like, are you really solving a differentiated problem? Are you solving that problem well? And can you back that up with data? And I think if you can, then you should charge for it. Yep, absolutely. 
So I want to switch, just totally switch gears selfishly because we're sort of getting near the end of time because I want to talk about your career a little bit because what's really interesting to me are different paths in PM and you've gone from product manager to a head of product to a business lead now at Stripe. So I'm curious, what's been the big difference about your current business lead role from more of a product leadership role? And like, how did you think about that choice? Yeah, great question. I think for a product manager role, like a product lead role, you're basically still an IC. I don't know if this is true of every company, but it was definitely true for me, where I was, of course, managing a few PMs, but never as many PMs as my engineering manager partner was managing engineers. And especially not because they were usually managing engineering managers who in turn were managing many engineers. Like I was probably managing at max, like I think an average PM manager probably at max is managing like four or five people. Really, you're you're also expected to contribute as an IC. You're expected to like set product vision, think about cross-functional topics. And in fact, at Stripe, our manager ladder for like ladders and levels for PM managers like looks almost identical in many ways to the IC ladder because you are still expected to think about product leadership and set the vision and the direction for that space as a PM. And moving into the the more like GM style role that I'm in now, just the sheer management responsibility is much higher. Um, like so in the role you manage engineers and business people in addition to PMs and you just are managing a lot more people. And so you think of yourself more as a manager than an IC. I thought of myself very much as an as an IC who happened to have management responsibilities here in my current role, I am I am a manager very much so. And so I think about making my impact through the people I work with as opposed to what is my mentorship of them and then my IC impact primarily. And so for me, as, as someone who spent a lot of time being in like a de facto ICPM, I, I see all these like juicy, interesting, cross-functional, cross-team like topics, like what is the future of X? I'm like, oh, this is so interesting. I would love to <laughs> spend time on this as an IC, but wait, I should probably resist that urge a little bit and think about how can my team make impact here instead? And how can I support them in making that impact rather than trying to dive in myself? So you're not the one who is, or a person in this role is not the one who is saying, okay, these are the next three problems that we're going to solve as a business. Instead, it's, okay, this is the the area of the market we're trying to play in now lead product person, go figure out the next step? I wouldn't say that the difference is that stark. It also, of course, depends on the size and scale of the business. But I would say rather than doing the thing that I maybe love best, which is like sitting in the room with the designer and being like, what are, what are our designs going to look like? Like, how are we right. going to iterate on this? Or like sitting with the engineer and being like, okay, like we are going to put out this API. Let's go through what all the param names are going to be and think about whether this makes sense as like a subhash on an existing object or a totally new object itself. Like that's not me anymore. I am reviewing those proposals after the fact because of course I'm accountable for the quality of the product and in what we do. But I am maybe a better a better way of phrasing it is I'm never writing the first version of the document um, in those cases anymore. I'm reviewing the document and, and that is a shift where before you'd be the person putting the ideas on paper and saying, hey, this is what this is what makes sense, this is what I think the, the strategy is, let me let me push this forward, or this is what I think the product spec is, let me push this forward. Instead, you are reviewing other people's product specs and saying, does this fit in with the broader strategy that I've laid out for the group? 
Yeah. And what do you think are the, like for you, what are the most interesting new problems that you get to think about? Yeah. I mean, the the product I'm working on now is in a wholly different space from anything I've worked on before. So there's a lot here just in terms of the domain and what types of problems that we have. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about like partners and regulatory pieces. I've always been as a PM, like someone who leans into to go to market just because we're a B2B company and you have to, but even more thought, thought on go to market these days and even more thought on sort of the commercial aspect there. And when I say commercial, I don't mean pricing, which I definitely think PMs need to lean into, but the literal like contract signature and, and terms, which is a area that I did not spend virtually any time in my PM mm-hmm. career about um, like the individual negotiation with a single user was like was not something I spent um, a bunch of time on. But my current product that I'm working on is is pretty early stage and closing initial deals actually really matters to us. So it is something that in the past I've kind of begged off by saying, oh no, I'm just a PM. Like the salesperson will talk to you about all that stuff. And now I'm like, well, I have a big stake in this and I need to think about it. Yeah, I spent last year, actually I think last year about this time we were launching a new product and I spent Um, probably a month and a half, basically just being on the sales team and doing the initial demo and trying to think about the value that it was creating. And I think that period of time was so valuable in how I thought about the product for the the next year because I had been on the phone and I understood the questions that those people were asking and the type of value that I knew I had to drive. So I love hearing that. Cool. Okay. My last question, um, because we are running out of time, but curious to hear what is your advice to product leaders who are looking to grow in their career and how you thought about that? Yeah. I'm I'm probably going to quote Shreyas here. Again, he has some really good frameworks for how you should think about growing in a PM career. And I would just strongly encourage people to look at what he's laid out. But for me, the key decision was thinking about, do I want to grow through a company structure? Like, do I want to go from baby PM to, uh, I can do things, career level PM to group Mm -hmm. PM, et cetera, et cetera. Or think about like, what is really the end goal I want? And for me, I've, I've come from a background of being a founder. That's like always what I enjoy going back to doing. And so growth path into more of a GM style role and like a founder style role has always been interesting to me as an alternative. And so I think the most important thing to do when you're thinking about PM in particular career growth is just anchor where the where that your desired endpoint is. Unlike engineering that has very laid out career paths, unlike sales or something that's like a lot more structured there's just a lot that's unstructured about thinking about PM career growth. And so having your clear North Star on this is this is what I want to do. I want to be a founder. So therefore, I'm thinking about product management as a, a learning experience for that. Or no, I really do want to be the director of product or the VP of product at this company. And therefore, I'm going to think about growing through the structure this way. Or alternatively, I really want to lean into the I want to say an IC, like I really enjoy IC work. I'd rather work on a small like SWAT team style organization with really elite ICs where we're working on really tough problems. And those PMs, I think, often tend to be like deep domain experts. Like they happen to be, you know, an MD, PhD, who's also a PM kind of thing. Those folks really want that career path. And so just, I think, anchoring where you want to go and what that alternative is, is the most useful thing. And then once you've done that, think about, all right, how do I get there? What is the right growth path? And what kind of mentors and company structures do I need to facilitate that? 
Well, thank you, Tara. This has been super helpful. I really appreciate you taking some time to answer my 100 questions about monetization. Absolutely, Maggie. This was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.